0: You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm.
1: On today's Science of Storytelling episode, I'm chatting with Justin Selko. Justin is the Senior Director of Branded Entertainment at LA Times Studio. We discuss our shockingly similar paths to the advertising world, the importance of context, and a future where branded content actually makes money for the advertiser. If you like this episode hit that subscribe button right now and leave us a review now let's get to the show justin welcome to the show
0: jared thank you for having
1: me this is great i've uh i've wanted to connect with you for a while i'm i'm super interested you're the senior director of branded entertainment at the los angeles times and i think this is a super interesting time we're we're here in september the world has changed a lot in the last six months but the world was already changing pretty drastically for the media business, for branded content, and even more specifically for the LA Times, which has gone through a lot of different changes over the over the last while. So first off, where are you today? Where are you physically sitting today?
0: I am uh, sitting at my kitchen table. I have an apartment and not a very big one at that. So uh, you have to pardon me if you hear um, some crazy noises. It's probably my three-year-old busting in to tell me about something very random. But uh, hopefully it doesn't happen. Uh, but yeah, yeah, in West Hollywood, um, and all things considered, Jared, it's not that bad. I actually, I've, I've kind of in, taken to this uh, secluded uh, remote work quite a bit. I, I enjoy it.
1: It's interesting. I have the same... Same feeling. And it's this unpopular you know, thing to say. I w- Even right at the beginning, I think I'm more introverted than I've given myself credit for over the years. And I would say it, that I'm thriving in, not thriving in COVID, that's pretty insensitive to say it in that way. But personally, I find the work from home has made me more productive. I'm getting more hours out of it. I also, I know you said, you mentioned you have a three-year-old. I have uh, two boys, a little bit older, nine-year-old and a six-year-old. But you get these little moments where you get to see them before school and when they get home from school. There's some interesting things that that I'm wondering if it'll be uh, something that we won't be willing to give up afterwards. I can't picture myself going right back to, you know, eight to 10 hours a day in the office every single day. Uh, so I wonder, do you think there'll be certain things that we keep from from this big change that we never asked for?
0: I, you know what? I, I wondered that myself and I don't know if I have the answer. I think one thing that, and just kind of speaking for some of my colleagues on the sales side, I mean, I, I, their job is still going to be to go out and, and, uh, engage people in meetings, to have dinners, to, to do, um, boondoggles, right? Uh, I think they're going to be eager to get back out into the physical world. But from a production standpoint, I mean, I've, I've learned quite a bit. I think, and we'll probably talk about podcasts and some of the work we're doing there, but we haven't missed a beat in terms of production because we're not, we haven't been very heavy on the video front. And that's kind of been proof in the pudding that at least for, for my group that we don't have to be physically around each other and and that we're able to do all these remote productions without really missing anything. Yeah.
1: And you know what? I also think that there's, been a relaxing of expectations around production values. Anytime, you know, Jimmy Fallon is recording a show watched by millions of people from, you know, from a basement with background noise, it means the rest of us can get away with quite a bit as well. I wonder if you've noticed that on working with clients, is there a more acceptance for not perfect production quality, whether it's audio or video or otherwise?
0: I've I've had both to be perfectly candid. We've passed on a few opportunities or not passed on opportunities, but did not pursue certain concepts with clients because we just knew that they had this kind of expectation that we weren't going to be able to deliver in COVID. But on the flip side, yeah, we've, we've had clients who have who have been more than understanding. And I think for us, you know, in, in the branded content space, and, and one of the things I really, really try to espouse is we should be the ones speaking to the zeitgeist of the moment. Right. That's uh, as as branded content creators with newspapers and and who who specialize in the news. I think our value is to be able to speak to the that zeitgeist, whatever is going on in the moment, and speaks speak to that in a very you know uh, uh, with with authority and 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 poise. And if you look at the production value, and if you if you're doing uh, if you're piecing together Zoom conversations and things like that, I think. Even if you have a lower production quality, what you're doing is speaking to the zeitgeist of the moment. Like, you would look back on that in two years and be like, oh, that was filmed during COVID. And now you have it, right? And and so it it feels more of the moment than I think your splashy, you know, high animation GFX all over the place uh, production would.
1: Yeah, and there's also the flip side of that I've been thinking about, which is, A lot of times we would create content with the purpose of it being evergreen. So, you know, spend a lot of time on the production quality of it, thinking I'm going to use this. I could use this for years if it's if it's. And but when you you use the advantage of being timely and like of the zeitgeist and right in the moment, I wonder if we're going to look back two years from now and none of the stuff that we created is now going to be usable. One for, you know, the you know me sitting in my in my basement recording seems just fine right now but you know 3 years from now will that still have the staying power or will it look like you know something where if we look back at videos that we made 20 years ago or 15 years ago and they're grainy and and you can really tell the moment and and it's a detriment to it i wonder if we'll have less evergreen content we notice this with advertising right like ads that were created in January of this year A lot of them were just shelved because they made no sense. They, you know, all of a sudden you got groups of people in a commercial, they're all hanging out and people like, well, that's that doesn't seem right anymore. So I'm curious if if the content we produce now, it's very of the moment, which is really important, like you said, especially in branded content. But I wonder if it'll have the staying power that the previous stuff did where it could be evergreen and, and could be monetized or used for a long time afterwards.
0: I, I think the, the, the concept of evergreen content is one that's becoming more and more elusive. One thing that we speak to a lot when we talk to our clients is the speed of culture and how it's accelerated over the past decade. And it, I, I always use the, like the example, like for me, I'm, I grew up in the 80s, so nostalgia for me is old, right? As we're talking about you know, 15, 20, 25 years. And that's nostalgia for me. I think if you look at the generation now and, and not even the generation, but just our, our collective mindset, I mean, 2014 is nostalgic, right? Like, I mean, like, right. Cause our, our, the way we consume information and there's so much coming to, at us and this, and at the, the speed at which it's coming at us, like we forget the next day, what happened the day before. And I think evergreen is incredibly difficult nowadays just because the it, the speed of culture changes what our expectations of any kind of piece of content is.
1: Yeah, actually that there's something that I really wanted that I was excited to talk to you about, which is you speaking of the speed of culture, you were before you were at LA times, before you were in this role, you spent a lot of time in the, what I would call like the early days of social media, which isn't that long ago, right? We're not talking about, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. How did you, I mean let's talk about your path to the role that you're in now because no no kid I don't think any kid grows up saying oh yeah I'm going to lead, you know, a branded content studio at a news but that's not a real sentence that a kid oh. says, right? Oh. A kid wants to be a fireman or a, you know a police person. Uh so tell me let's start with what what did you want to be when you grew up when you were a little kid.
0: So I mean I wanted to be a fighter pilot but very at a very very early age uh I had glasses so I mean, that, not that there's not a number of other things, hand eye coordination and everything that would have prevented me from being a fighter pilot. But uh, yeah, when I got glasses, I cried and I was like, now I'm never going to be able to fly. But, and you can, I, I think you can roll your eyes when I tell you this, but I knew from a very early age, um, fifth grade, that I, I wanted to work in advertising. I'm from Detroit. My father worked uh, at an automotive um, supply company. And I would go to his office and, and it was just beige and, and gray and drab, you know, like they, they were, they were building engine parts and engine testing. Like it, it was, it wasn't a, a super fun or creative environment and that's fine for, for the job it was. But then I remember a friend's father worked at an ad agency called Donor. They're still around and took us to his office. And I was like, what is this place? it was just, it was all these colors and, and, you know, blown up um, photographs and, you know, uh, they were playing music. And, and I, I was like, that's, this is it. I'm like, this is where I want to work. It, now I it took me a long, long time to get anywhere near that, but no, I, I, it's the just, juxtaposition of kind of what my father did, which was um, I, I'm admirable and I'm, I'm not knocking my dad, but, I knew that that kind of environment wasn't going to work for me from a very early age. And yeah. Well, uh,
1: I definitely won't roll my eyes at that because it's funny that you say it. you're the first person that I've ever talked to that has almost the same like path into it. So I was, how old was I? I was probably like six or seven years old and there was a show you're an eighties kid. So you probably know this a show called who's the boss, right? And Angela Bauer was the head. She had her own advertising agency. And I watched that show and I wanted to be Angela Bauer specifically when I was, I don't even know how old I was, maybe 10 years old, something along those lines. And it was a really similar. So I grew up in in Edmonton, Alberta, which is in Canada. It's the prairies of Canada. And my dad had a construction company, which, again, like super admirable. I mean, it's it's something that I was never actually able to build as a skill set, you know, my dad could probably build a house easily with his, with his own hands. Whereas I don't think I I can, I can create a great marketing campaign on paper. Uh, But I, I had this similar thing. I was in this prairie city with probably not a lot of the flash of what the advertising world offered, which was Angela Bauer come back home uh, to Tony. Tony Danza was the, the housekeeper in that show and he, she would have these big uh, storyboards and magazine covers. Uh, she'd go for these, like, exciting dinners. And it was just so foreign to me that there was a world that existed like that. And I fell in love with it, too. Now, was there anything about the ad industry beyond the, the flash and the, you know, the sexiness of it and the bright colors and the creativity? Was there anything specifically, because that exists in places like Hollywood entertainment as well uh, and the art world, what was it about advertising? that kept you tied to it after that first
0: initial love? I think <laughs> I, I realized, I, I understand and recognize my shortcomings. I knew that this was an opportunity, this was a field where I could play to my strengths, where you know, creativity, communication, uh, analytical thinking and strategic thinking. Like I, I knew that I could do that well, right? In, in high school, I could write papers. I, you know, I was great at history. I struggled with science, math, pretty much anything else, right? And so I just, I think I just uh, tried to uh, play the cards that were, that I was dealt. And so it's probably not as inspiring as, as I make it sound. It's probably a little bit more practical than anything.
1: You actually sound like a fairly practical kid. The idea that, you know, I'm going to be a fighter pilot and then you have to wear glasses. So, you know, that's out of the running. I'm pretty sure I wanted to be maybe an astronaut or something at some point but i didn't look into it any further <laughs> there was no i wasn't checking if i was qualified in any way at any
0: to do that you probably watched space camp that movie right and yeah, that um, was what it, like that's it <laughs> and it was like ah yeah, oh, so then you move into
1: I, i'm really interested in the idea that you moved into social media well before it was you know you may as well probably have told you know your family that you were a stand-up comedian or a struggling actor. To be in social media, I doubt it had the the gravitas or the the respect as an industry that it does today. So maybe talk to talk to us about how did you get into the field of social media, which which I would say has made up a, a good portion of your career so far in one aspect or another.
0: Oh yeah, it's it's it's, it's probably been um, a good you know seventy percent, I think. So coming out of school, I, I graduated from Michigan State and in Detroit, the, Detroit goes where the audio industry goes, right? And I graduated at a time and I'll date myself, but this, it, this was when the bailouts were on the horizon. The auto, the American audio industry was not doing very well. And as such, I mean, you could not find a gig. It was a very, very hard industry to break into. It still is. It's not an industry with a lot of entry-level jobs. So I, I bided my time. I mean, I waited tables. I bartended. I remember I interviewed for a, a traffic position that would have paid $18,000 a year. And I was like, oh, man, I hope I get that. And <laughs> but, so it took me a while. And, and finally, the opportunity that did arise was um, working in experiential marketing on GM's Saturn brand, and I got to travel the country, do these events, work on arguably one of the best brands that has ever existed, and it was that was kind of like I, I don't think I knew this at the time, but you know, in retrospect, that was a sea change in in advertising and marketing, where that traditional top-down means of communication. Brands were really starting to look for a little bit more, you know, horizontal communication and they were doing this. And this is when, you know, guerrilla marketing became the, the big thing, right? <laughs> if you had a big campaign, you had to have some kind of experiential or guerrilla aspect to it because it was all about getting out there and, and engaging consumers face to face. I always had a little bit of a political bug. So I went from that to PR and I learned, I, I, I thought I knew how to write before I went into PR. I did not, and I really, really honed how I wrote and how I thought about messaging, and not just messaging, but not and, and, and that initial audience, Jared, but the audience after that one, and the one after that, after that, um, because that's what PR is, right? You 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 think of the most benign way of saying something that you're that isn't going to wrinkle anyone who reads it, and. So that was a, a, a wonderful experience, but I just very quickly knew that PR wasn't going to be the, uh, wasn't going to offer me kind of the creative avenue that I really wanted to pursue. So I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm reading trade publications and they're talking about this thing called Twitter. And, and I, I joined, I think I was one of the first 300,000 people. And like I was like, oh, this, this could be neat, right? But the more I read, the more it just kept being more and more about digital. And DC and public affairs and public relations have, have come a long way. But back then, I mean, that, that stuff was, I mean, we were still faxing press releases, right? So uh, I had the opportunity to kind of just uproot and got a gig doing new business development for a digital design and development firm. And as I was reading these RFPs, I kept seeing more and more about social Inclusion, you know, APIs. Um, and I started writing, you know, our, our company blog and I just started running more about social media, which at your, to your point was really like, no one really had that sauce yet. And I took a gamble. I, I quit. I became a freelancer with no clients and I was like, I'm going to do social media. I just felt that, that eclectic mix I had of, of experiential marketing, the, the face-to-face interaction, the one-to-one engagement, the PR where I really learned how to tighten my writing, and then the digital world and getting an understanding of just what you know Web 2.0 was, that little grab bag of experience, I was like, I'm going to do social media. Um, and thankfully, I wasn't on my own for too long, and I ended up at Razorfish, which uh, was one of the first agencies to really go all in on social media. There weren't too many social media teams at that time, and I, I lucked out to join one with, that was just filled with some amazingly talented people. And it, we really made it up as we went along, and it was it was such a exciting and fun thing to do at that time.
1: Well, and you know you're so you're so early into it. I uh, at the time I can imagine it being pretty fresh, pretty new. It was about, you know, every ha- every person having their own, you know, microphone basically. Whereas before it was media controlled the message. I mean, blogging had started a bit, but it wasn't that accessible. And now you had, you know, Twitter comes out, Facebook comes out and everybody can share with everyone. And at the time too, it is probably a lot different than today. You could You could gather a pretty high reach as a brand or as a person. Without you know cost, it wasn't a pay-to-play type model back then. What if the you know you've watched this since? I don't know what year were you at Razorfish?
0: Oh boy, what was that? Twenty eleven, I think.
1: Right, right. I think Facebook was only founded in like two thousand and five or something like that. Right. So we're like we're, we're early days of social media from that time, and then we we talk about the speed of culture. That's only been nine years. In that nine years, how do you how do you see the difference in social media today than you did at that
0: time? Well, no. I, when we, you were absolutely right when we first started. I think we we had this kind of very altruistic view, and it's like we are going to democratize consumerism, right? We're, we're, like you said, we're going to give the consumer a voice, and we're going to hear it, and we're going to engage with it. And to give you like to talk about the early days and and really the, the biggest change that I saw, and it's, this happened in my first in my, in my two years in the business, when I started, there was no advertising on Facebook. Even when it came, it was, I mean, it was limited. They didn't have a lot of options, right? You know, a year later, now we're seeing, unless you pay, no one's gonna see your content. And that was the biggest shock. It was going from having this, this kind of free society, where consumers and brands could interact. And then very quickly it, it devolved into just another medium for pushing advertising content. And while the challenge for agency people was your client had become used to certain levels, right? You, you would do your reports and you would say, look, we reached you know, a, a million five this week. And because of the change in the system, the algorithms, you, unless you paid, you weren't getting those levels. So the only thing to compensate for that was to post more. And posting more did not mean that you were creating better content, right? Because it's just, it's, it's the, the, the more you're, you're just trying to shove out, obviously not all of it's going to be your A game. And that was frustrating and, and watching that happen. And I think I became a little bit more disenchanted with social media as, the bulk of the content that I felt that at least I was creating was more and more superfluous. It, it just did not like, it was posting to post posting to get something out there. It's like, Oh, what are we going to do? Uh, how about a Monday's post? Uh, Right. (laughs) And what value is there in that? And so, um, yeah, I, I became disenchanted with social media and part of combating that actually it was brand new content and that came about when I started working in the entertainment space here in LA because I'll never forget I'll, I'll, I remember the, the project it was uh, stars I don't know if you're from uh, the stars channel. Um, they had a show coming out called the girlfriend experience um, based upon Steven Soddenberg's film the, the girlfriend experience which is about prostitution right and I I I want I forget maybe it was Vice or Refinery Twenty Nine one of those um, studios had sent out had responded to an RFP and they were like we're going to embed with a real GFE and we're going to report on that life and then they were like we can even have her watch the show and tweet along with it and I was like oh that's better than anything we can do I'm like that's brilliant I'm like because right I'm like I would. I would read that. That's awesome. And that was kind of that kind of that was the light that clicked on for me. And, you know, starting to realize that um, there is it's it, 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 to get away from quantity, a move back to quality and a move back to where we and, and maybe this never existed, but a move to where we understand what the consumer actually wants. And we're giving them that instead of kind of foreseeing them what we think they should want or hope they should want.
1: Well, you know what? Because you mentioned the, you know, branded content. So branded content sometimes means something different to everybody. What would you, you know, define that as?
0: I would say branded content. Well, and and let's look, I'll I'll keep it close to the public publishing space, right? So Los Angeles Times, uh, LA Times Studios, Washington Post brand studio, T brand studios. Uh, I really look to them, uh, as, as, as kind of the North Star, because they're doing, they've been doing the type of work that we're trying to do here at LA time studios. But that is, again, using your, your mouthpiece as kind of that, that, that voice of culture, um, keeping your finger on the pulse of culture and being able to report on that on behalf of brands. I think that's what branded content is. It's creating content of inherent interest for your readers that doesn't necessarily have to have that CT at the end by now, right? It's, it's a means of really getting out there and, and doing a service and providing a utility to consumers in a way that traditional Advertising and, and maybe even a lot of content nowadays does not.
1: Yeah, I'm projecting a bit here, but there's so many similarities in in my own path and kind of view on this. So I because you know I, I actually worked for a company that did experiential, then I got into digital, and then I got deep into branded content. And the one thing that's similar with all of those is that they are messy, difficult, Hard to scale parts of the advertising business. The ad business is highly scalable. TV ads are highly scalable. Display ads are highly scalable. Even some social media ads, but let, everything that you've touched feels like you know the it's got so much like grunt work to it. Uh, experiential marketing's a nightmare. It's everything <laughs> you're dealing with humans, weather, locations. And a lot of times like uh inexperienced staff, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it's a mess. I mean, I it's it's powerful when it works, but operating it. It's my my wife actually we met through work. We were both in the experiential space, and I think we, we probably met over just you know uh discussing how difficult it was, right? Probably venting about it, and then you get into social media in its early stages, again, very messy, very misunderstood. And then you get into branded content, which is further along that. Is there something that attracts you to the difficult unscalable parts of advertising?
0: (laughs) I never thought of it like that, but maybe, maybe. And I think you you hit the nail right in the head because that probably is the, the first barrier I or my colleagues need to overcome when trying to sell branded content um let's be real it's it's a premium right it's 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 not as cheap as other uh means uh there is a lot of work Uh, not just work on you know of the people that you pay but i mean my clients have to do more work when they engage me and, and i'm not doing a very good job of selling it but but we'll use the podcast for example i mean we five episodes we do three cuts of each episode and we're doing that on a you know Fairly accelerated timeline, and our clients have to listen to each cut, and they have to provide notes on each cut. and And God bless the ones that have uh, really kind of taken to it, um, because it's it's not an easy thing. So I think you're absolutely right. It's it, it's my biggest challenge and that first barrier is convincing people that it's not about scale in the traditional sense. Um, we'll use social media as an example. Again, we're going back to kind of my, my familiarity with that. But a video view on social media is three seconds. So yes, you can put together, and a, a, a lot of the work we do is entertainment, so we'll, we'll go with entertainment. You can put together a, tra- a great trailer, you can put that on social media, you can get three million views. Of those views, 90% are three second views. Now, but if you come to the LA Times Studios and you do a podcast with us and we get 300,000 downloads, you look at that and you say, well, that was a waste of money. Not really. Because of that, those 300,000 uh, downloads, we had attention for 25 minutes, which is, you know, I, I, I always joke, I'm like, that's dog years when we were talking about t- attention. And I'm willing to bet that those 300,000 individuals are the, the the purchase intent whatever it is we're after the you know, the awareness the the shift in brand perception i guarantee you that those three hundred thousand people are taking that message to heart way better than the you know three million that briefly gave it their their their, their glance in the news feed and so so scale, absolutely. And I think it is a challenge, but it's just a matter of rethinking scale. And I think, again, I would rather have the hearts of a few than the feeding attention of the many.
1: And there's something fundamentally different between, because you're talking about a podcast. Actually, why don't you do a little plug for the podcast? Which podcast uh, are you referring to here?
0: Uh, well, we've done a couple. I would say, uh, and I think and it, Maybe we can talk about it in depth, I think maybe a little bit later. But if you if you are listening right now, uh we have two out there that I, I'm very proud of. One most recent was with Amazon Studios in support of the original series Hunters, starring El Pacino. Um I don't know if you've seen it. It's it's a crazy show. It's about um Nazis in then the nineteen seventies planning a fourth Reich in America. It's fantastical, right? But what we did with the podcast is we took the very real nugget that was its foundation, which is the United States absolutely brought Nazis over after World War II and put them to work. And in fact, we wouldn't have gotten to the moon if we didn't have those Nazis. And so what we did there was uh, we have Michael Ian Black, uh, a, a comedian, writer, actor um he's he kind of plays the role as, of the the listener he's the proxy for the listener and across the episodes he's engaging a cold war historian about this topic and so it's 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 a fun uh listen it's it's we do talk about nazis so it's not maybe uh the the brightest listen but it's it's incredibly interesting and and just having having a chance to delve into something uh of depth like that was a lot of fun. And I think it's a lot of fun to listen to.
1: So tell me why, because this is interesting. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of podcasts. I listen to them all the time. I'm currently hosting a podcast. You're on this podcast, it's very meta. Uh, what I find interesting, a couple things, is one is why the LA Times studio should be involved in that. Uh, what is it that attracts Amazon? Who has the you know power to be able to create anything on their own? and they're choosing to to find a partner to do that. So that's one part of it. And the second thing is you're promoting a piece of entertainment with a new piece of entertainment, right? There's already a show, it's already content. You're creating almost like a new show to promote the other show, and I've seen this work really successfully. If we think of, you know, you mentioned T Brown Studio, I think they still, you know, they're still well recognized for the Orange is the New Black piece, which kind of kicked off this whole new view of what sponsored content could be. So let's, what is it? I guess first, just straight up, why does Amazon come to LA Times Studio for this?
0: Great question. I think first and foremost, it, it, you look at the track record of LA Time Studios, uh, at all, right? LA Time Studios, we're, we're a little bit, we're, we're set up a little bit differently than our, uh, competitors or colleagues. LA Time Studios was originally created to be the production and development arm of the Los Angeles Times. So that was, you know, taking our 140 some years of storytelling and finding new mediums to bring those narratives to life. So uh, it was podcasting. It's working uh, to develop TV shows and film IP. And uh, we have a, a great staff and, and And one of my best friends oversees that side of the business. And they've had a, a tremendous run um, in regards to that. Um, I think six number one podcasts. Um, one of our podcasts is the most popular, one of the, the most popular podcasts of all time. Um, in Dirty John, I, I think it has 55 million downloads as of now. So I think one, it's, it's coming to us because of our track record, um, as a production studio. Um, and two, it's coming to us because, and this is the value of branded content, whether it's the LA Times or New York Times, but, you are getting a legitimacy just by being associated with the name that you don't get if you do it yourself, and I think that's incredibly important. Even more so when we're talking about content and marketing content, right? The user their their blinders go up, right? We we we've become very very good at ignoring marketing. Um, we have a defense mechanism against it because we get it from every single angle when we wake up to when we go to bed. So coming to the LA times, it helps you kind of, you know, slide right through that because it, it has a little bit more legitimacy, uh, to it than your traditional marketing message. And then to your point about, and pardon me, Gary, what was the, the second part? I, I,
1: yeah, I'm on the kind of side. So yeah, they come to LA times, you've got credibility experience resources in place to be able to to do that and then you have to come up with some way like you have to come up with a podcast it's different to come up with a podcast that is about a product so you know slack has a great podcast it's about the future of work that's fine slack is a product we make up an entertainment uh, piece uh, as their branded content in this case you're talking about an existing piece of entertainment and then you're almost creating like a brand new show. And so is it that you, I guess what's the, what's the take that you have to, because you guys work a lot with entertainment brands, you, there's a lot of creative control that goes around a show that's being produced. It has already creative development. It has directors, producers, actors, etc. A lot of, um, IP that exists in there. I guess when you're creating these podcasts or this content for entertainment uh, products themselves, what's the, what's the usual angle or path you go to come up with those creative ideas?
0: Jared, one thing I, if I have a mantra, uh, I, I don't know if I, I, I'm sure someone smarter and more famous than myself has probably said this, but I, 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 I came up with this and it's kind of really stuck with me as I kind of look to guide LA time studios and it used to be everyone would say content is king and i would argue that the the correct kind of approach that nowadays is context is king and what we try to do with these companion podcasts or or articles or videos that we create is provide a context for the the viewer the moviegoer um, that they didn't have prior to watching the film or watching the TV show or after they've watched it and they want more right I don't know about you when I really get into a a, a series and I see that there's like this like there's not another season for me to immediately dive into I get bummed like that that is a i i I miss that I'm like oh and I think what we do here is, is we really scratch two itches. And it's one, if you don't know anything about the IP, we provide you a baseline for for getting into the IP. And if you're a fan of the IP, we give you something to continue that that journey you're on along with it, um, with these podcasts. So it's, it's two audiences with two very different um, goals, but I think it, it, it serves both admirably. We'll be back to the episode in just a few seconds. But first, we have some exciting news for you. At Pressboard, we love stories, but we know how hard it can be to measure them. So we're here to help. Whether it's a sponsored article on a news site, an Instagram post from an influencer, or a video on YouTube, our tech measures it all. Pressboard is already trusted by Spotify, Intel, NBC Universal, Hearst, and thousands more. And here's the big news. Listeners of the podcast can try out the Pressboard platform for free. Just email info at pressboardmedia.com right now. All right, let's get back to the show.
1: I really like that. It's, uh, it's an interesting way. And I don't know if you made it up or if someone else made it up, but I'm just, we'll just give credit to you for this now. If I I ever say it again, that's, and I will use that again. I'll apply the credit back to you. Uh, But that makes sense. You're introducing people to a piece of entertainment so that they watch that piece of entertainment or or see that, you know, episode. And then I'm like, I'm like that too. So I watch a lot of based on a true story movies or TV shows. Like I love anything where there's, you know, there was a real, you know, mafia that existed. And then immediately after I'm done watching that, I'm on the internet for two hours, just digging deeper. Like, I want to know, you know, who this person was, what they did. Uh, and it's this, it's a bit of a, a, fandom, right? You have these, especially with entertainment, you'll have these big, you know, Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or, uh, cult TV shows and they create universes of content on their own. Uh, my cousin is a, is a screenwriter and producer and that's basically, they release a movie and then they build uh, they have this movie called Chained that's out right now. And then they build a bunch of experiences around it because there's just this fandom. You have a small group of people that are first interested in it and they, they're like insatiable in in what they want to learn about it. So I've never thought of it that way. I've always thought of it as a promotion mechanic. So how do you get someone interested in the content? I've never thought of it as a companion to, or like follow up to it, which is a almost like an entirely new use case for, for branded content from what I've seen out there.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I think so uh, podcasts are a great example, but I mean, even if we're talking about some of the articles that we create, and you had mentioned um, the orange is the new black, that that seminal piece, right? And and that's a perfect example. If you look at what we've done for CBS All Access, they had a TV show uh, come out called Interrogation. It was based on a true story, uh, I believe, and it, it was just the series was confined confined to a very short window of time and. It was all about the interrogation process, right? And in support of that, we did a three thousand word word article, and you know, uh, we used a journalist, a capital J journalist, to do all the the work. But he went out there and he found a public defender turned or a public prosecutor turned defender, right? You know, uh, defensive attorney. Uh, He found a homicide detective. And then he actually found a, a wrongfully convicted man. Um, and we got those three POVs and we put them together and to talk about what actually goes down in a police interrogation. Now, if, again, that's context. If you read that and then you, you see this thing for the show, you're going to be like, oh, now that I have this baseline, I'm all about it. And I'm gonna get in there and, and I'm gonna enjoy the show even more. conversely, if you yeah. see the show, you can read this and you can kind of fact check uh uh you know or check against the veracity of of how they've uh put it together so yeah I, I think it's it's interesting and and, and it's unique that, that for l a time studios because we're in entertainment that we get to do these kind of things, but it's i we find adjacent narratives. And we really explore those. To your point, there is a lot of moving parts in IP. There are the producers and the uh, writers, and, and they really control the canon of that stuff. What we do is we create adjacent content that helps color in the lines in the fictional and the actual.
1: Interesting. And then, like, these aren't, you know, quick projects. You're doing a podcast series. You might do video doing articles. Uh, and it's not cheap as far as advertising goes. I mean, it's not crazy expensive, but there's an absolute cost to it, uh, that the brand is paying for. So how then you mentioned this, you know, the podcast gets 300,000 downloads. I mean, to me, as someone who makes a podcast, I'm like, that's exceptional that you can get that many people downloading something. I know how long people listen to podcasts. They'll listen to them for 30 or 40 minutes. You compare that to impressions on a display ad, and you're right, you're talking about dog ears here. We're not even talking about the same metric. How do you translate what the results or the success of a campaign that isn't going to wow someone in sheer impressions the way that that you know a Super Bowl ad or a display ad campaign can? How do you convey the value of, you know, someone spending a lot of time with it? to a brand that might be less used to those types of metrics. And I guess, what are the metrics that you like? Is there a silver bullet metric out there for branded content that you find resonates well with the advertiser?
0: I wish there was. And when we have the right opportunity, when the budgets call for it, we will put brand lift studies into place to help dive in and, and get, capture a little bit more than just those, those um, standard KPIs. I mean, I wish that time spent, um, click-through rates, completion rate, I wish those things were enough to sell, um, but they're not. And I think for us to succeed, if we're going to become um, a best-in-class branded content partner, um, it's gonna come with exceptional content married with a very, very smart media plan uh, with it branded content is top of funnel and i think especially now you know it, 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 with with the move to e-com i think dr is becoming more important but what can we package along with that content that guides people down the funnel and if we've done our job right you're going to see higher conversion rates Absolutely are because again you've given context right to to whatever the product or or tv show or whatever it is you provide a context so now when you send something a little bit more direct to them that's going to resonate better than just a cold watch this now right
1: yeah yeah and it's it's trying to move because digital has been i mean you've been in digital a long time and it's traditionally been lower funnel only because it was the only thing that measured lower funnel you know clicks to purchases uh search intent it was it was sold to the world as a lower funnel tactic and now that everything is digital in some way it's tv is ott uh the la times is a digital property as much as it's a newspaper property uh i think that there's there's some time it takes for For that sale that was made on the internet to to advertisers, it takes a while for that to change. We did a great job in the early days of digital of selling the idea that this is a lower funnel. This is a lower funnel ad product. No matter what you're doing on the internet, you can measure clicks and clicks are all that matters. And I've seen it even, you know, you look at influencers and influencers were sold on the idea of following. And that's why as much as, you know, we've worked with a lot of influencers at Pressboard And as much as people say, no, following doesn't matter. You can buy followers. They don't matter. It's about engagement. The first thing someone looks at is following. And I think we have the same problem that will happen in branded content. The first thing people want to see when you do an article is how many page views it got. Regardless how long they were spent or anything else, they're like, did I get, you know, 10,000, 50,000 page views? And it's tough. I remember there was a movement towards trying to use total time spent as a transactional method i don't know if you remember this but there was a time where uh, different publishers were trying to sell on hours so we'll sell you hours which ties in with the the idea of an attention economy which is you have 24 hours in the day if we can get someone for three of those hours that's exceptional but I, i wonder if it'll just take some time for people to to decide that those are the metrics, I mean, I would love a silver bullet metric, and I think people have been searching for that. That time spent. Do you remember when they forget who was that that first launched it? But they're trying to sell in time blocks, really? advertising
0: in time But it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because you're you're getting attention of people, and that's the only thing that there's limit on. Like you can get an unlimited. There's 350 pl- million people in America, but I can get. 350 million impressions in three hours right so it just math doesn't make sense but i can't get three hours times 350 million people or else i'd have to have everyone's attention the whole time so i think there's something something interesting there uh now i kind of want to move on to
0: actually uh jared if if, hey one one last point though i think there there is another way and we haven't done it yet we're working on it there is another way of Selling branded content for the 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 cost conscious or or the bottom line conscious client, and what we're seeing is this the the content that we're creating can and should be monetized. So uh, right now we're we're engaging a few studios and we're we're trying to pitch the idea of basically a a bundled podcast, right? Or uh, where we're doing seven or 10 for you across the year. Um, What they, you know, get, what uh, we get in scale, they get in returned in savings. But what really pushes, pushes, pushes it over the top is if we're talking about 10 podcasts, now you're essentially talking about your own podcast network. And there are ad Spaces to fill on those, and so you can t- turn this content over to you know uh, a mid roll to to fill, dynamically fill those spots, and now you're starting to return getting a little bit re, like hard currency return on that invest that investment you made for a marketing program. So I think that's where I see this going. Um, we've talked to a few clients who have done that, and and they're they're gung ho. Um, you know, not just in the entertainment space, but certainly in the entertainment space. Um, you know, th- this is an opportunity for studios to develop IP as well, right? Um, in, in, a, in a test bed that is a lot cheaper than going into the full pre production pro- process for a TV show or film. And then for clients that, yeah, you know, let, let's look at, you know, Zip Recruiter, who does a lot of podcast advertising. I'm Positive they have their own podcast now, and that is a evergreen means of advertising, right? They, they own that. So that 30-second that spot or that whatever that mid-roll is, they can fill that with new messaging in support of new products on and on and on down the line. So long as it's good and people listen to it.
1: Yeah. You're essentially creating this idea of this isn't an ad campaign. We're going to create a media property. And that media property is going to be so good and so attractive to so many people that it can return some of its costs and, you know, in a dream world, become a profitable advertising model. This is really interesting because this was the promise of branded content originally. If you remember, like every slide deck about branded content starts with Red Bull every single one right (laughs) it's like look what red bull did they're not talking about energy drinks they're just creating like crazy bmxing stunts and they're getting people to jump out of a plane. but what was always interesting to me about that wasn't that red bull you know wasn't talking about energy drinks it was this idea that they turned it into a media property which could uh, monetize itself and cover its own investments so Advertising is often seen as a expense, not an investment, not a capital investment. A, like if you know, an accountant looks at uh, you know a business's P and L or their income statement, they are they are not including advertising as a capital investment. But in this case, you you almost move it in the balance sheet, which is a f- fundamental switch in the way to look at something like advertising. It's a capital investment that could return for a long period of time, money back, and in addition, build goodwill, sales, etc. Uh, how do you think so? That leads me into the, the future of what branded content looks like, because it's going to evolve. Uh, we're in this weird time with you know, COVID, COVID crushed advertising budgets. People don't talk about it as much as you know restaurant closures and those things. But the ad industry got crushed, right? Uh, spends were pulled back. I mean, they're coming back now. But something's going to have to change. Uh, Facebook and Google are getting the majority of budgets and something different has to come across. And you do see these media properties, these, especially in the podcasting space where the content creating companies are being bought for hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. And by the sounds of it, you know, LA Times, the entertainment side has been like popping out the hits. Right. Do you see a future where branded content becomes less of a, you know, advertising tactic and more considered, I guess, closer to to a capital investment in an entertainment product that does monetize? Do you see that as a real future or is it something that you'd like to happen?
0: I don't see it taking over the industry. I see some smart clients recognizing the right opportunity to use that model, if that makes sense. I don't think I don't, we're, we're not going to see everybody start opening up their own studios and and putting out docu series, right? But for the ones that it makes sense for, for the ones that have the the budget to make that initial capital investment, I think absolutely. Um, but I think kind of when we talk about the future of branded content, I mean, I I am a very, very big proponent of brands really participating in society and culture. I think, given what we've seen with, I mean, this spring, um, and, and the social awakening that's going on, um, if you, you know, backtrack a year and you look at the student strikes against climate, I think what we're seeing is a generation that Demands much more. They demand more out of their parents. They demand more out of their friends, their leaders, uh, their schools. And yes, the brands that they they support and the products they buy. And I think that we've seen some very smart companies and brands recognize this. And I think where we're going is a line in the sand has been drawn. And Consumers expect brands to state which side they're on. Uh, I, I don't think it, the time of you know, uh, apolitical equivocation, it, it, it's gone. And when we look at branded content, I would argue that publishers like the Los Angeles Times, like uh, some of the others that we've mentioned, um, they are the ones in the ideal place to help speak to that because it's our job, right? It's our job to understand that. It's, it's, it's it, it, not, I shouldn't say our job, it's the job of, of the amazing you know, colleagues I have in the editorial room to do that. And it's my job to, to absorb it and then kind of use that to, to guide uh, my clients. But so if I think if I look at branded content, I think it's going to become more and more, I shouldn't say hard hitting, but I think we're going to see more and more depth and we're going to see narratives explored that were probably, I don't want to use the word taboo, but I'll use it. That may have been taboo for brands to venture into, you know, even three years ago.
1: Yeah. This is probably the natural progression of this experiment called capitalism too, right? Where if if markets are controlled by business and the economy and, eventually in order to companies need to grow right that's capitalism requires that growth is always happening and i i agree that the cultural shift that's happened in the world is you do even personally need to have an opinion on something form an opinion and choose where you stand on things and if, if people are doing that brands aren't fall behind far behind I am curious how you separate a charismatic leader of a brand and their personal opinions from a brand itself as a non-human entity, right? So how do you separate Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook? How do you separate Papa John from Papa John's pizza, right? The company. Uh, I think there's a lot of like trepidation in this space because is it is the stance the opinion of that CEO or that chairman? Or does the brand itself as a non-human entity stand for anything? Or does it stand for nothing at all except commerce? Uh, so I it's really interesting. I agree that it is something that is going to happen. And then I question whether the like, you know, the morality of it. Anytime you introduce morality to capitalism, it doesn't work out well. But uh, I think I think that'll be something that'll be interesting for brands to navigate over time is separating their, the opinion of the people and leadership in their company from what the brand stands for to the audience that, that consumes it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
0: No, I think that's fair. Um, I, I think maybe taking it, I, I think for me, it's maybe not taking it a little bit more micro and not looking at the, the, the macro company. But let's use, for example, uh, just about every big corporation or brand, right? They have, you know, they, they're they probably doing something in from a, you know, corporate social responsibility standpoint with homelessness or cancer, right? Like And they'll put out press releases and they, they will say, we've donated all this money, blah, blah, blah. That's great. I don't think that's enough for consumers nowadays. And I think what brands can do is instead of talking about their participation, let's use homelessness as an example. Can a brand use its platform to say we've donated you know, X amount of money to uh, combat homelessness? And these are the real challenges facing us in regards to, to, to that. And so it's, it's not so much saying, you know, pat on the back, look at us. It's actually saying, all right, well, let's look, w- why is homelessness on the rise? Let's educate people. And I think is looking at it on a case by case basis and, and kind of the, the initiatives that you have, what are the narratives that you can pull from there that, that makes sense to, for a, your brand to speak to because if you are making these donations, all right, you are involved in it. You you have a, a reason to speak to it. Now, now speak, speak well to it. And I think um, that's looking at it on a case-by-case basis, identifying these little narratives that you can pull out and expand. I think that's where it's at. Maybe in, in not so much in changing, like developing a huge anthem that is like, this is who we are. Um, I think you still have, avenues for that. It's, it's called the the you know, the Super Bowl spot, right? I think what we're talking about here is looking at these individual activities that brands and corporations are, are doing and pulling out the, the meat there and making a nice dish out of it. I
1: think, uh, you know, as, as you're talking about it, the thing that makes them, you know, resonates with me is what people want is to know that, you know, the brand actually cares about this through their actions. Right. It's easy to make a donation to some charity with your additional, you know, EBITDA that you had at some point when someone or a brand really cares about something. A lot of their actions are around trying to change the unfairness in whatever that system is. And, and I agree that is a place for brands to play. And even tying it back to 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 you. And I think that you and me both love the advertising world, fell in love with it when we were kids, when no one else was talking about this industry. And maybe the reason that we want to get in these messy parts of it is because we just give a shit about it, right? We care about, you know, how this industry is going, where it's going next. And that tends you to get into the parts that are uh, messy and they haven't been figured out yet. And it takes a lot of time and thought within it. So, I mean, I I really appreciate you being on the show. I'm super excited to see where LA Times Studio and LA Times in general, and this industry goes. And I think it's super cool to have someone like you that obviously cares deeply about this as a part of this industry. So I wanna thank you for being on, on the show. And before I let you go, I, uh, I always ask for a book recommendation or a movie recommendation of one that just, you love for whatever reason, we do a book club here at Press Board, and, yeah, I wonder if you have a book or a movie or both that has, you know, either one that you go back to all the time or one that's made a significant difference in your life.
0: I love that. I, I love that question. My favorite book, what I always recommend to my friends, and it has nothing to do with advertising. And, and so it's it's certainly uh, it's probably a little tangential to what we're talking about. But uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night. And uh, it's I, I, trying to figure out how to talk about it without giving it away. But, um, a American born man in Germany during the rise of the third Reich is a, he's a playwright and he's approached by a U.S. government official to infiltrate the, not, not the regime. And the way he does that is by becoming, uh, uh, who Tokyo Rose was? She the one who who broadcast in English to troops um, in in the Pacific. Anyway, it was it, to to do English language propaganda to uh, American troops uh, stationed in the Euro- European theater. Right, And he says the most vile things, but in those broadcasts are codes that the allies are using to get information. And so it becomes this, and, and the beauty of it is, is he a good man or not? He did this despicable thing, but it was in service of a greater good. And it, the, the whole story is kind of about him grappling with um, where he stands on that. And And Vonnegut says it's the only book he's ever written where he knows the moral. And that is, you are who you pretend to be. So it is important to figure or to be careful, what it is you're pretending to be.
1: I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad your eyesight didn't allow you to be a fighter pilot after
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. To